Hello, welcome to Visionary Spaces, Psychedelics, Creativity, and Play. This episode, I get the uh, I have the honor of speaking with Dan Nash. Dan is an apprentice, I guess for lack of a better word, under Paul Diamond, and he knows a lot of stuff, very well spoken, and the point of this interview in particular was sort of a best case, best practices for ayahuasca, who should take it, who should not, what do you need to worry about, what you might get, what the integration's like and whatnot. So if you have not taken ayahuasca before, this is a great episode for learning what to expect in a non-sensationalized internet sort of methodology or modality, excuse me. I am personally tired of watching and hearing about trip reports and watching and hearing about people's toxic opinions about who should and who should not and how ayahuasca should and should not be taken. Dan Nash is really quite an expert on this. And as you will see, it's really not that complicated and it really doesn't have to be. Ayahuasca, you know, if it's calling to you, it will have profound changes on your life. You will learn more about yourself, about your place in society, in your family, in your community. It will open your heart and make you a better person. That is truly my belief. So Dan's going to talk a lot about how this works and how one might go about starting a practice with ayahuasca. So without further ado, I present Dan Nash. I will see you at the next episode. Thank you very much. Visionary Spaces, Psychedelics, Creativity and Play, with your host, Michael Puente. Conversations with Masters of the Visionary Space. Hi, I'm here with Dan Nash at Tantria, and we're going to talk about several things to be considered of for the person who's new or considering trying ayahuasca or entheogens in general, but specifically ayahuasca. Dan's a facilitator at Tantri and knows a lot about this, you know, guiding newbies, for lack of a better word, or people who are interested in, uh, we're going to try and talk about a lot of the misconceptions and things that people are generally concerned about. Hello, Dan. Hello, Mike. (laughs) Thanks for uh, having me today. Yeah, thanks for being here. So I guess the first thing we want to talk about is the kind of common misconceptions about what do people like think ayahuasca will do for them that it won't do, what will it do kind of sort of thing? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think a lot of the misconceptions usually come around the reasons why people want to work with ayahuasca, why they want to take ayahuasca. Usually from my experience, since I've been working down here, a lot of individuals come to the medicine either for some type of physical, emotional, uh, mental healing or usually some type of uh, feeling of stuckness in life. Sometimes it's spiritual seeking, other times it is a, a desire to try something different, try something new, because you know, usually either the Western systems of uh, psychology or healthcare, um, or just the support that they've looked for in the Western world usually isn't helping them break through or find the answers or clarity that they're looking for. So with that, I feel like a lot of the misconceptions around the ayahuasca, at least from my experience down here, are usually around how the plant medicine actually does its work, um, around usually the, the fear and discomfort of, you know, am I going to vomit? Am I going to shit my pants? <laughs> um, and then 
you know, unfortunately, a lot of the documentaries that are coming out now are very sensationalized. Yes, they tend to sensationalize and romanticize the phenomenological arisings or the visions that happen on the medicine. And so I feel like a lot of the misconceptions, besides what we just spoke about, are more so along the lines of I'm looking for. A, B, C type of healing, or I don't know what healing I'm looking for. I just feel stuck and I don't know. And so a lot of the sensationalism or romanticization mm-hmm. <laughs> of uh, drinking ayahuasca tends to be around, you know, the visions one has, the downloads we get, you know, the exotic states and conditions of consciousness that we visit. And, you know, one of the things that really resonated with me that Paul usually shares with people is the example of, let's say we have a cough. We go to the store, we get some cough medicine. When we drink the cough medicine, we don't wonder, how is it going to make me feel? Am I going to see anything? No. Did the cough medicine do its job or not? Mm. And so a lot of people coming to the medicine are looking for these exotic experiences as a primary criteria for, you know, did it work or not, Mm. as opposed to really tuning into what am I here for? What am I trying to heal? And you know, having some openness to the idea that, you know, a lot of us in the West don't understand how some of these more esoteric things work to drive a healthy life, you know, healthy mindset, so on and so forth. So yeah, I feel like a lot of the misconceptions are mostly around people not really being sure about what they're coming here for, what they're looking for, which again is part of the journey, it's part of the process, part of the learning, but then releasing expectations of what does healing actually look like. Hmm. So I feel like the expectations around how this healing should work, usually based on our Western models of health, is where a lot of the misconceptions come around the medicine. So how should it work? <laughs> if you know, it's, if there's no answer, to that, I know that there's definitely no good answer. I would say, you know, it's it's definitely a magical medicine, if we can use that word. When we do enter into these spaces, it does become quite apparent that our sense of self, our sense of the nature of reality, vastly changes. <laughs> and uh, you know, in that space, even though the ayahuasca is doing its work, and you know, and a good shaman is is facilitating the energy moving in a way that is you know, beneficial to our healing. But most of the time, you know, with the blissful exotic states or the terrifying uh, visions or, you know, the physical discomfort or difficulty, it seems that aversion to pain, discomfort, suffering that can come up on the medicine is usually what what causes most people to be averse to it. Again, this is a generalization, but uh, one of Paul's teachers, Peter, shared this more or less, uh, you know, jungle medicine usually makes you feel worse now, better later. Western medicine usually makes you feel better now and worse later. Again, a generalization, but I think the aversion to pain um, and discomfort is usually where a lot of us get stuck there. And so in regards to how the healing seems to happen, again, can't really describe all of the magic that's going on in these different planes of consciousness in the background, but usually our rational egoic mind can't make heads or tails out of the experience. And so a lot of times people leave an ayahuasca ceremony maybe feeling a lot better, but really having no idea what the hell happened. 
Um, <laughs> and so this is, you know, one of the reasons I really enjoy working with Paul is because, you know, the Q&A sessions he does before right. we drink, I feel like add an orientation to the work and uh, some teaching to the work so the Western mind can utilize the medicine experience in a way that's actually going to lead to the full flourishing of the human system, you know, being a kinder person, a more compassionate, more wise person, um, which is really what we're looking for with this work more so than all of the exotic, blissful, interesting states and conditions we can come into. In your experience, you mentioned some of the reasons, but feeling of stuckness, feeling of esoteric sort of blah, you know, in the Western society, I guess a lot of people, maybe that's what I came here for originally. Just like, I don't know, there's gotta be something more, right? What are, what are the wrong reasons to come to the medicine? I don't know necessarily that I can think of any wrong reasons across the board, except for, you know, the psychonaut drive to just experience and explore. And again, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a wrong reason. Again, these dualistic right and wrongs sure. are difficult to, to get into. But, you know, what, what I would say is the intention that we have coming to the medicine will greatly impact the amount of healing, the amount of work that actually gets done by working with this type of plant medicine. And so, again, we all have our breadcrumbs that, that lead us on our path, that bring us on our journey. And so, you know, sometimes people having psychonaut experiences eventually leads them into a path of working with these entheogenic medicines in a way that is appropriate, in a way that will actually lead towards healing as opposed to just tripping on the astral and having more experience. Mm. So besides that, you know, I would only say that for people to consider whether this is right or wrong for me, really getting in touch with the intuition and, and, you know, trusting if you feel a call towards doing this type of work, there's probably something there. And I would also just add that the only thing I've come across is where the medicine was clearly not the right idea for somebody is, you know, you see friends come down traveling together. One person really wants to work with the medicine. One person's like, yeah, you know, I guess my friend kind of wants to. <laughs> and you get into these really difficult spaces. And if you haven't come with an intention and, you know, a strong desire to actually heal and work through dissatisfaction with life or confusion, depression, whatever it is, it can be really difficult to maintain presence in those difficult moments of the medicine. And instead of it being a healing experience, even though it's difficult, sometimes the medicine can possibly leave people with a bit of PTSD if they're not coming to it with the right reasons and sitting with the right person. Okay, good answer. I like that. Speaking of intentions, so describe the importance of setting an intention. What are better intentions? What are least good intentions? I have an idea of what's not the best intentions, and I'll give you my the, the only one that comes up to mind, things that are really, 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 really specific. Like I wanna work through this one issue that happened with my mom when I was 13 and <laughs> something like that. Those from just my limited experience working with people, they don't seem to get those met as well. They might get something else that they needed, but, or maybe sometimes the medicine doesn't even work in that case. I've seen them, I had nothing happen that night. And my imagining is that they're focusing so hard on driving that path, they're not seeing everything else that's surrounding them in terms of their change in consciousness and experience. So what are better intentions, what better approaches towards intentions and maybe less better approaches towards intentions? Yeah, it's definitely a really good question, you know, especially because the magic and power of this medicine does leave a realm of infinite possibilities of what we can ask for, of what we can work with this medicine in regards to accomplishing, whether it's for healing, the liberation of consciousness, so on and so forth. What I would say is, 
usually when setting an intention, it's you always want to have some intention going into ceremony, or else it can just be really confusing, more so than, than what it is even when you do have a really strong intention. Mm -hmm. So having some intention before working with any entheogen, you know, mushrooms, uh, iboga, ayahuasca, whatever it is. And, you know, to your point about these really narrow, specific intentions, I think it's it's okay to ask those, but usually what happens is we, because we're so focused on that, we don't have this relaxed, soft mind that allows other possible solutions or means of healing to come in to resolve whatever it is that we're working on with our intention. So the more open it can be, so instead of saying something like, I want to be enlightened, which is just, yeah, the medicine will show you some things if you ask that question. Usually that our conception of enlightenment is completely misconstrued and been co-opted by, by the ego. But, you know, instead of asking for that, asking something more open but still pointed, which is, please bring me to the highest states and conditions of consciousness available to me. And so there's still an orientation to it, but there's an openness there so that the medicine can bring you to where it needs to without so much of this egoic control over how this has to look, how I have to get there. Um, and I think that's usually where a lot of the confusion around, I don't know if my intentions were met or not, what, what people will talk about after ceremony, which is, um, you know, we may ask for uh, resolving some sort of uh, underlying emotional difficulty we have with family. And we go through our medicine experience, maybe it was wild, maybe it was crazy, maybe it was boring. And at the end of it, we're not really quite sure if anything was done there. And so usually, because our models of how reality works and who and what we are are not accurate in the West, are not as accurate as they could be, we tend to use, you know, as the mind always does, the mind can only use what it's experienced and seen before to try to project into what something should look like. And so the, the surrender aspect seems to play a lot in the fulfillment of intentions in, in trusting that the medicine is working on resolving something. You know, maybe if it was emotional, we have emotional energy that's stuck in one of the organs, um, sadness or depression in the lungs, anger in the liver. And, uh, you know, the medicine might be going in, clearing that stuff out so that month or two down the road, when you have another difficult interaction with your family, all of a sudden there's a little more space or there's a little more clarity that's there. But that didn't happen until two months after your ceremony. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, usually um, having trust and uh, faith in yourself and in the work are two very important components, I feel like, with intention setting. Which brings me to the other point that, at least from my experience with the intentions, is the, uh, the will or, you know, one's willpower. And what I mean by this isn't so much like, you know, I, I need a new Ferrari and a new job. Usually those aren't great questions to bring to the medicine. The medicine doesn't really care too much about your material existence. <laughs> Other deities, other spirits, obviously, one can work with in that way. But, you know, in regards to one's will that's driving the intention, I can't speak for this broadly, so I don't know how generally this is true, but just from my own experience. You know, in the beginning, probably the first 50, 60 times I drank, you know, I'd have an intention, and sometimes it would be quite clear at the end, oh, okay, yeah, that I, I can see how that kind of fills in. Or, um, you know, the journey as everything's unfolding is just this crazy nonsense, it seems like. And then at the end, it's kind of like, okay, well, I trust that it was doing whatever I needed to do. And then what seemed to happen mm, almost a year ago was it's, again, 
just speaking from my experience. <laughs> it seemed like enough of the conditioning, the confusion around who I am and what I actually want. You know, not necessarily the ego construct Dan, but more of my essence or soul, if you want to use those constructs. <laughs> it seemed to be that because there was enough cleaning out and, you know, not slaying of the ego, but a softening around it, it was a lot easier for me to come in line with what my true will or true intentions are to be in this world, to explore in this world, to have fun in this world. And so what seemed to happen in this last year was as I was setting my intentions, not only did it feel like they were being met at the end of ceremony, but because it felt like the intentions were so much more in line with my actual will, what I actually want, not you know what Dan's been conditioned to think that he wants. Mm -hmm. um, not only was the intention being met at the end of every ceremony exactly as I had asked or had thought, the journey on the way there, it almost seemed like the medicine was, you know, almost like a, you can imagine a self-driving car that you are, you're driving along with it at the same time. So it seemed like the more clarity and connection I had to my true will or my just will in general, the more clarity during the journey and the more clarity at the end I had around how my intentions were met or work that was needed to be done before these type of intentions could be met. So, you know, I feel like as we just clear gunk out of our mind, out of our emotional body, whether that's through meditation practices, qigong, medicine work, the more we come into this place of being in, in touch with who and what we really are, then it makes it a lot easier to know what we want and how to ask for it. Um, and then when you get your intention, not when you get your intention, that's the right, wrong way to put it really, but when you're outside of the medicine space, you've had your ceremony, you have things that you've realized or downloads or whatever, which is not always downloads, but you have some something that you want to work on. What's the process of integration? Like for the, you hear that all over the place. There's there's integration integration counselors now <laughs> putting the shingles on their you know on their door. What's process of integration usually, best practices? Um, so I think that there's, uh, you know, definitely as Western psychology and psychiatry comes into contact with entheogens more and seeing the potential they have for healing, you know, there's definitely uh, some structures I think that are getting borrowed from there to utilize in an integration process. From my limited experience and research, you know, it seems like a lot of the protocols that are used for people who have suffered uh, trauma or difficult life circumstances seem to be some of the tools that are being utilized currently just to help people process, unpack their experience and to understand a little bit more of what the hell is this all about. And so in regards to best practices, um, I don't know that I can I can speak to any that you know are are good general across the boards. But one of the things when it comes to integration, I feel like from my experience of doing integration calls with people, follow up calls with people after they come on our retreats, is not everybody needs the same type of integration, and some people I find just want somebody to connect and talk to who is on their journey, going through whatever evolution, transformation, growth that they're going through that they may not have the community for back where you know home is for them. And so I feel like one of the major components to integration in general is community. And so, you know, whether that is a medicine group you sit with back home, whether it's, you know, again, spiritual seekers is, is a bit of a, a dangerous term to, to get into here, but other people who are really asking these hard questions of, you know, who am I and what is reality? What is life? What, you know, what, what can I do with this? And uh, I feel like the more that people have even just one person in their life in physical proximity, you know, even online 
works as well. But I feel like the physical proximity to at least one person or a community who may have a different path than you, but there's an honoring and a, an openness and vulnerability to talk about that path in a way where most of us don't feel like we can go into work Monday morning and be like, you know, hey, Bob at the water cooler, how was your ayahuasca ceremony this weekend? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously workplace environment and culture is shifting and changing as it always does. But I would say having a, a strong community or at least another person in your life who is on some type of similar journey is probably the most important part to us being able to integrate medicine experiences mm-hmm. in a way that will actually allow us to derive utility from it in our life and to communicate about it to individuals in a way that feels safe and doesn't make us you know, feel like we're crazy. <laughs> so besides the community thing, I would say the big thing that's been my, I would say, anchor or saving grace and you know, as much medicine work as I do and as much work as we are doing with the medicine down here is my Qigong and Tai Chi practice. Having some base grounding practice, you know, whether that is from you know, the Buddhist tradition, Taoist tradition, yogic tradition, really any sort of contemplative practice that helps us embody, you know, really be in our bodies and uh, allows us to feel more connected to our moment to moment experience, I feel like is probably tied with the community in terms of having a, a practice that's going to continue to give us some sort of orientation for how we're going through life. You know, things can get crazy with our families and with work and having a retreat a few times a year or medicine ceremonies every month, whatever it is. At that point, if we don't really have a practice to anchor and ground these insights, this healing, if we don't have a community to support us, it feels like, you know, it's an uphill battle to, to fight this thing on your own, so to speak. <laughs> And um, if we don't have these, you know, some set of practices in the community around us, it can be really easy to fall into, I wouldn't necessarily call it escapism, but it's just kind of using this this tool as a band-aid rather than as a catalyst towards actual transformation and actual change that is going to lead towards a more meaningful, peaceful life, or at least a more meaningful, peaceful relationship with life you know, regardless of the turbulent things that may arise in it, there is a space that we can all come into as human beings that allows us to fully experience without judgment, without attachment, without aversion, and to see all the difficulties in our life as our teachers, as opposed to, you know, things that we shouldn't have to deal with. It's great. So let's talk about, because you mentioned a little bit about Qigong and did you say Tai Chi also? Mm-hmm. If someone decides to make this kind of a practice do medicine work every few months or however they're called to it. Besides Qigong, well, you can tell me what's the benefit of Qigong and Tai Chi. What are some other practices that support the practice of the medicine work that improve the whole experience of it? I've found that meditation helps me. I'm not a great meditator, but I, I try. None of us are. But I found that, that when I started meditating, which was sometime after my first experience with the medicine, I found that How it was... How long ago was your first experience with the medicine, Mike? Uh, about almost two and a half, two okay. and a half years. The, okay, gotcha, yeah. Yeah, two and a half years ago, February 2017. And at some point in time, I you know, tried meditation and whatnot, and I found that having a regular meditative practice and what I learned about experiencing my consciousness in that practice has generally made some intense experiences much easier to deal with. And so that's a practice that's outside of the medicine space that helps me inside the medicine space. So I mean, what other things can you use and apply and how are they most beneficially applied? Yeah, so I think there's uh, 
kind of a few different inroads to this question. And, uh, you know, before I came down to Peru about two years ago, I had been meditating very casually for maybe a year, year and a half. I got introduced to this app called uh, Headspace. And that app was my initial inroad into like, okay, just got to do it for five minutes. Yeah, let's let's try it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of dabbled a little bit. Um, I had done a lot of uh, research into some of the esoteric traditions, but more of it was just kind of an interest in the uh, crazy phenomenology that's talked about in these traditions more so than the actual application of these technologies. So, like what? You know, looking into more of the shamanic traditions of Buddhism, like Bun, um, and the different like spirits, deities, um, the different medicines they've worked with in the past. And so, you know, that's kind of, I think, what drew me towards Eastern wisdom or practices at some point was besides my slew of psychedelic experiences in my 20s, allowing me to move from my scientific, rational construct of how the universe worked, who I am. The psychedelics really seemed to allow me to question that in a way that moved me into inspecting these, you know, more seemingly esoteric traditions from the East. Yeah, so I got involved in meditation a little bit. And then when I began to notice you know, working 80 hours a week, if I meditated on a fairly consistent basis, you know, like what a lot of us come to meditation for, there's a specific utility. I want to feel less stressed. I want to be more productive. I want to be healthier. And again, you know, these are all valuable, useful things when it comes to these practices. But as kind of a disclaimer, uh, and you know, I wish somebody would have told me this earlier, and thankfully I met Paul as, as soon as I did, these practices are tools. And any good tool, when you're done with it, or any good practice when it's accomplished what it's meant to accomplish, self-destructs. You know, as the Buddha said, when you, uh, you know, take your canoe across the river, when you get to the other side of the stream, you don't pick your canoe up and carry it across the land. The canoe's done its job. And so, you know, I feel like one of the traps we can get stuck in is when we have expectations for what a practice will do to us or the experiences it can engender, we don't allow the practice to fully work because we have expectations of what it's going to do, which is kind of the trap I fell into a little bit before coming here and meeting Paul. And then when I stepped away from what I was doing before in San Francisco, I spent about three or four months as guy on the couch at my friend's place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I really dove into the meditation then. I was probably doing about three to four hours of Vipassana meditation for probably a good two or three months, most days. Uh, reading tons of non-duality books, listening to like Ram Dost and Alan Watts lectures. And uh, yeah, you know, I felt like it was it was helping. It was, um, yeah, I was working with psilocybin occasionally with the Vipassana as well. Unfortunately, that actually led to more confusion than utility because I didn't really know how to work with these medicines. And yeah, you know, it had a, a very... Um, a useful impact before I came here, which um, is the other point with the practices I want to bring up. A lot of these practices, you know, whether it's a basic meditation practice, mindfulness practice, a vipassana, open awareness practice, it can allow us to develop what um, some people refer to as the witness consciousness. And this is really one of the main reasons why I'm very thankful for the vipassana practice I did before I came, was before I got down here, it had at least solidified into being able to drop into the witness consciousness. So, you know, when we have strong emotions, thoughts, you know, really strong patterns of behavior, thinking, emotional responses that seem to just take us over and we don't even realize it until we're caught up in the, you know, the wave going along with it. 
the witness consciousness that can be developed through mindfulness practices, Vipassana, you know, other open awareness types of meditations, I find are very useful for medicine space as well as non-medicine space because it, it gives us this capacity to drop back when there is a strong arising in consciousness. So we can see, oh, anger is there. Oh, lust is there. Or, you know, whatever thing arises, we can sit back and see very clearly, oh, I, I'm not that. If I'm, if I'm observing that, then that can't be me. You know, mm-hmm. so the identification that we have with being a sad person, an angry person, a depressed person, those grips tend to soften through the development of the witness consciousness. And, you know, carrying that into the medicine space, especially where things can become quite intense and in what arises, um, it can be a useful tool so we can maintain as much presence with what's showing up as possible. But again, um, you know, as Paul was talking about the other night, the witness consciousness is a useful tool. The difficulty is a lot of us can get stuck there because we feel like we have power then, you know, like I can control my thoughts, emotions. Again, we can't control any of that. They just show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what um, was really helpful when I met Paul at the time was I felt like I was stuck at that stage, you know, okay, so I can see everything as it shows up and I can choose to respond how I want, but now life feels really dry and boring. Like, I don't feel like I'm connected to anything anymore, but I feel safe. So, you know, at some point, once we do begin to feel safe in our own experience of the world, our own experience in the medicine, this is where the next part of the process kicks in, which is a re-merging with the experience. So, you know, when I'm having a cup of tea, I'm not sitting back anymore and being like, oh, okay, you know, there's tea in my hands, it tastes good, it's this, it's that, whatever, showing up. It's now more so of a, you know, I am the tea. I am the drinker of the tea. I'm the space that we're sitting in as the drinking of the tea is happening. And so there's this very visceral, kinesthetic feeling that one is connected to very deeply with reality. And I feel like a lot of the Vipassana uh, type meditations, especially the body scans, begin to work on this capacity to reconnect with experience kinesthetically again. Most of us, and you know, kind of transitioning from there into the Qigong practice and the Taoist work that I do with Paul, a lot of the meditation that, from my experience, that is introduced to us in the West is more related to the mind more so than the body. So, you know, we're just constantly allowing and witnessing what's arising or being directed on a guided meditation that maybe brings us to some beautiful places and gives us a sense of peace for a day or two and then it goes away. Uh, Is um, these body scanning practices from the Buddhist tradition, but what I would say is the Taoist and yogic technologies, especially with their mapping of the energy systems um, and how energy moves through the system, is really sophisticated technology. The way they have mapped out not only how the energy system works, but have deconstructed it into practices that are not only applicable for just your you know, regular well-being, health, emotional happiness, these energy-based practices where you're running your awareness through your body in certain fashions, depending on the tradition. From my experience of being down here and working with Paul, one of the major reasons why he's integrated these internal energy or alchemy practices from the Taoist and yogic traditions with the medicine work is most of us, our energy body is completely shut off. You know, if I said, bring your awareness to your right knee, most of us are going to be like, what what, what do you mean bring my awareness to my right knee? It's right here. Mm -hmm. And so this kinesthetic capacity to connect with reality has basically just been shut down in us because 
we're not working with it. And from doing an energy-based practice like Qigong specifically, which is the major umbrella in the Taoist tradition, you know, where like Tai Chi, Bagua, Xingyi, all of these are manifestations of the energy work, or, uh, you know, Asana, Pranayama from the yogic tradition. These energy-based practices specifically, not so much the mind-based contemplative practices, what they're doing from my experience and from what Paul shared with me is they are reopening, cleaning out the energy systems, cleaning out the channels, which again is what the medicine is doing. It's going in and it's finding these blockages and it's, it's working through them, much to our discomfort most of the time. And what it feels like has happened in my own experience is as my energy body has begun to open, it's almost like this whole new aspect of reality that I had shut myself off to has come back into awareness. And so, you know, as I'm sitting here having a conversation with you, most of my awareness is anchored into my body right now so I can feel what's going on in my body, you know, as a sensation showing up in my liver, my spleen, my head. And so there's, it's almost like having a new tool to experience reality with. And the major reason I bring up the energy-based practices having an importance there is because as we begin to have this kinesthetic awareness of our experience come back online, we can drop into the body. And when we're in the body, we're not in the mind. So the mind can be going crazy, the mind can be doing what it is, you know, especially that inner narrator that's always going on, conveying our experience to us so we can't directly experience it. The energy body, when it opens enough, seems to act as an anchor. So we can just drop into it, and anything that's happening, whether the mind's being crazy, people are yelling at us, you know, anything's going on in the world around us, we are not dropping into a witness state where we're separating, but we're anchoring into a very secure place of being able to experience the world around us in a very, you know, juicy, vibrant, interesting way that doesn't seem to be available to us if we're not doing something to open the energy body. So that's why I always suggest some type of energy-based practice for people because that's what's inevitably going to lead to the medicine, you know, when it brings us to these heightened states and conditions of consciousness, uh, when it drops back down again, as Paul's talked about, if the energy system, you're doing work on that, it's not gonna drop back down to baseline. Mm -hmm. You know, it's gonna come, you know, back down to pretty close, but then we can actually begin to utilize our practice and the medicine cohesively together to derive a more satisfactory life and eventually, you know, leading to, with the right view and right understanding, the liberation of consciousness inside of a human being. So. Interesting. <laughs> really interesting. Let's talk about intense trips. <laughs> You're smiling. <laughs> part um, for the course. <laughs> part for the course. What, what are they about? How do you handle them? What are the best practices for handling them? They're inevitable mm -hmm. if you do this more than once or twice or a few times. So what are the flight instructions for intense trips? Again, I can only speak from my own experience here, but I think, you know, one of the things I've, I've gained from working down here at Tantria with Paul is, uh, you know, before I came down here a few years ago, I had taken LSD probably 40, 50 times, mushrooms probably 40, 50 times, you know, some other psychedelics as well. But uh, I always felt like when I went into these spaces, there's something of value here. You know, a lot of us, we report going in and like, I got it, I have the answers. And then you come back and you're like, I, that, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so in regards to intense trips, you know, I had my fair share before coming down here, which I feel like help prepare me for just being okay in those spaces. And, you know, I feel like a lot of us 
we come to entheogens or psychedelics usually in a recreational sense initially, which again, there's nothing wrong with that. We all have our breadcrumbs, but I feel like the ceremonial container for working with these, especially with a, you know, well-practiced skilled shaman who can, you know, hold the space properly, can manage the space properly in terms of all of the energy and, you know, more difficult to conceptualize things from the Western mind that the shaman is managing play a huge role in whether a very difficult experience that we went through on an entheogen translates into value in our life. And so I think primary is if one can be in a ceremonial container with a proper shaman, that's going to mitigate a lot of the noise, so to speak, of what can show up when you work with an entheogen. So if the container is not held properly. We take, you know, mushrooms or LSD or whatever it is, and our aura gets blasted wide open. And we basically become a point of interest to all of these energies around us. And if we're, you know, we're in a city or, you know, places where there's just a lot of heavy, dense energy, all of a sudden our aura is open now. And, you know, maybe these very interesting beings or other things coming to us that we feel like are interesting may not have our best interest in mind. And so sometimes I feel like a lot of the intense or difficult experiences I've had in the past before were partly due to me not actually understanding what's going on inside of this space and uh, kind of just getting lost and confused with the different beings or experiences I was, I was having. So to work through difficult experiences, you know, again, ceremonial container, shaman, ideal for working with these. Not everybody's going to decide to do that though, understandable. <laughs> And, um, you know, as one gets into a difficult experience, I feel like, you know, going back to what you were talking about with your meditation practice, this is where these tools can become very helpful. You know, can we drop back into the witness state and be able to have this kind of detached experience? Now, the only disclaimer I would add to that is the more that we drop into the witness, the less we feel and connect with the experience and the less valuable and healing that experience will be because it's just, it's less visceral. And so, you know, again, these tools can be useful for managing really intense, difficult experience. All of us need training wheels with this stuff. We're not expected to just jump into the medicine space and deal with the deep cellars of the mind and unconsciousness and come out smiling on the other end all the time. But, you know, besides having some of those basic tools, whether it's, you know, the meditative practice, following the breath, sometimes mantras can be useful as well, just to bring some concentration and focus to what's going on inside of the space. What I would say though is the most utility that you will get from working with these medicines is when something difficult, terrifying, borderline traumatizing it feels like shows up, the more that we can connect and be present and surrender to that experience, the more healing the more clarity, the more insight that will come from it. And, uh, you know, really, I feel like surrender is, is what carries us through the difficult experiences and carries us through in a way where there is actual utility we get out of it. Besides whatever the medicine, you know, was doing, the insights you had, the realizations, one of the things I've experienced, and as I shared with you when we spoke before, uh, a medicine experience I had back in May can easily qualify as the most terrifying, difficult, painful experience of my life. Again, there's the container and the shaman that I trust, but at the end of it, coming out 
the other side, it felt like, you know, I, I can make it through things that are difficult. I can make it through when life is throwing chaos at me, you know, whether it's medicine space chaos or, you know, you wake up in the morning and your car doesn't start, you spill coffee on your shirt and, you know, Bob doesn't, I don't know why Bob's at the office, but, um, <laughs> and, you know, Bob doesn't have the report done that you needed. That's another form of chaos in our life. And I feel like in the medicine space, when we can really learn to surrender with to what is, not what we want, but what's actually arising in this moment, the more that that can carry over into our regular daily lives, where we can, we can find peace and stability and groundedness to work through all the chaos that may show up in our you know, daily waking lives. So I don't know how much that answers your question oh, in terms of... <laughs> no, I think so. I think those are good, good points. Bliss junkies. <laughs> kind of... Used to be one. Used to be one. <laughs> Yeah, this term has been getting more popularized, I think. In the last few months, I've seen it pop up more. Mm -hmm. Someone who's coming for the experience, not for the healing, I guess, is the mm -hmm. way I would think about it. Um, how does one not be a bliss junkie? <laughs> how does one know if one is? Yeah, what well, can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I would say, you know, at least the level I'd like to respond to that question is that you know, outright, I would say nobody is a bliss junkie, but we tend to identify, you know, again, the ego is amazing at grabbing hold of whatever it can and identifying with it, especially if there's some sort of feedback mechanism that seems to create some sort of bliss, joy, excitement that could be connected to all sorts of sensations from pain to bliss to, you know, whatever type of vibration gets your rocks off, so to speak. <laughs> and, you know, the mind has labeled all of these vibrations as, oh, this is joy, this is bliss, this is anger, this is depression. And, you know, really what's going on is there's a perturbation of consciousness, a vibration happens, and we've just been conditioned to attach a label to it. Oh, this is anger. We can feel what anger sounds like and we have a word to, you know, kind of communicate it. But because anger usually has this negative connotation around it, likewise with bliss having a positive connotation around it usually, unless you add the word junkie at the end, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, we uh, tend to attach without even knowing that we're doing it because we've been so conditioned, anger shows up. And instead of just seeing it as another vibration, another arising in consciousness, that's not good, it's not bad, it's just there. We attach to it so immediately that before we even realize that that train has taken off, we're already fully in, you know, angry mode. And so, you know, the same thing with uh, bliss, let's say. And in regards to my own experience with chasing the high or, you know, chasing after ideal states and conditions of consciousness, you know, in the past when I used MDMA quite a bit, I would say that in my head, I had the story of, okay, this is my release valve. This is, you know, what, what I do every, you know, few months or so to uh, blow off steam. Or, you know, I even possibly had the story in my head of, oh, this is good for me. I'm not drinking alcohol. I'm doing this instead. <laughs> and, you know, when I began to understand when I first got down here and, you know, like I, you know, I quit my job, I closed my bank accounts and all that kind of stuff. And what I realized was this bliss junkie, you know, behavior that I had was a form of escapism. And so, you know, what I would say regarding the whole bliss junkie thing is it's not good. It's not bad. If one does feel like one is a bliss junkie or vehemently denies one is a bliss junkie, which means you should probably question it more, <laughs> uh, is uh, you know, really taking a step back and looking at 
what state or condition of consciousness am I pursuing? Is it this feeling of aliveness, this feeling of energy, you know, these flow states of consciousness that are quite popular right now and people are talking about are great states and conditions of consciousness to be in because we feel alive, we feel connected, we feel in flow, there's no resistance. And so I feel like a lot of the bliss junkie experience I had was connected to finding means to enter into these flow states and conditions of consciousness, whether through substances, extreme sports, whatever it is. But what I began to realize, at least about myself, was that is, in essence, an aversion to what's happening right now. And it's it's a really fine, tricky line to walk. And, you know, I still have to kind of keep an eye on myself sometimes. And usually the question I ask before I participate in something, do something, go to a ceremony, so on and so forth, is am I coming to this experience or taking this substance or, you know, doing this activity to connect more deeply with myself and the people in the world around me? Or am I doing it because I feel like I need to disconnect from what's around me? And any time Time that is a disconnect. It's not that one shouldn't, you know, engage in those activities, but one should really take a hard look at, am I doing this because it brings me excitement and joy? Or am I doing this because it brings me excitement and joy and it also distracts me from the shit I don't want to deal with in my life? And so I think those are always good questions for people to ask who, you know, are working with entheogens for experiences. Again, nothing wrong with that, but there can be a lot of clarity about what we can do without medicine just in our daily lives if we can be brutally honest with ourselves about what am I hiding from? What am I running from? What am I not being honest with myself about? And how is that carrying out to all of the connections that I have in my life? So yeah, really just always as much as possible asking the question, is this connecting me more to myself and the world and the people around me? Or is it a means to disconnect from an uncomfortable situation that I'm not ready or prepared to deal with. And most of us in the West are not equipped to deal with all of these difficulties we run into in life. You know, we haven't had good models, not role models necessarily, but, you know, just models of working in reality that actually bring, you know, peacefulness, happiness. <laughs> so you can keep chasing all that you want, but, you know, from what I've learned down here and, you know, when people ask me how I'm doing, I haven't been this at peace in life since I was probably 10, 11, 12 years old. I'm still busy. I still work a lot. You know, I still have a lot going on, but I feel like in my moment-to-moment experience when something arises that there is aversion or discomfort towards, um, it's actually shifted a little bit into, I get excited a little bit now because that makes it very clear to me, oh, there's your work, Dan. That's your teacher. That's your vehicle to liberation right there. And so the more that we can embrace the discomfort in our life and work with it, you know, I think Ram Dass refers to it as grist for the mill. This is the work, you know, and the medicine can help us with that work. But if we're not going to go do it in our daily lives, there's no silver bullets. (laughs) That's awesome. I love that dichotomy of are you doing it to escape or are you doing it to connect? That's a great heuristic, you know, for, for that, but not just for medicine work, and but for kind of anything you do. That's beautiful. One final question, probably maybe the longer one. This podcast is called Visionary Spaces, and I think of that as when universal consciousness guides our intuition to, period. <laughs> universal consciousness guides our intuition. And I found that in the medicine space, I've had a couple, two experiences where I'm, I was left surprised. I was doing things where I felt I was guided by universal consciousness and I was just making things happen and I was very interested in it. And yesterday we were, you and I were talking in the kitchen about your entering into, you know, doing ceremonies on your own and to work with the, in the medicine space and in the visionary space, medicine space to start 
working there. So can you describe that? Yeah, to, uh, to preface it, I have, you know, working with who I'd say my main teacher is Paul Diamond, sure. uh, finally did reach a, a space where he felt that it was safe and appropriate and I was prepared to work with the medicine on my own. And so I've only done this once so far. Yeah. Uh, so just one experience to, to kind of go off here, which is very few. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I would say besides it being, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, healing that kind of took place, some energy uh, that was kind of constellated in the spleen in the left part of my body. So there was some nice cleaning that happened there and some insights about my uh, behaviors and patterns in the past with relationships and things like that. So some insights there that were, were very nice, but I would say most of the learning that came from that ceremony was more so around how one is utilizing awareness, how one is utilizing consciousness to create an energetic container, if you will, mm -hmm. so that um, you know this dance can unfold safely inside um, and you know there's not external energies complicating or harassing you or so on and so forth. And yeah, I would say a lot of the learning or most of this learning I feel like is more remembering than learning <laughs> as it is with most of this work is um, the actual kinesthetic feeling or awareness of what it's like to utilize aspects of awareness or consciousness to hold a container while also allowing a surrender at the same time so that consciousness can, you know, unfold in the way that it wants to and unfold in a way that, you know, as you spoke about before, you've been in these spaces and feel like you're being helped or guided. Yeah. And we are, whether we can see another being doing it or not. And this is where I feel like the non-dualistic understanding can, can bring us to realizations from medicine work that are leagues beyond, you know, the general emotional, physical, psychological healing that we're working for or working with the medicine for is this non-dualistic understanding when you go into the medicine space and, you know, you see an alien or an ancestor or a god or a demon, having the understanding and really embodying that understanding, oh, this is just another manifestation of me. This is just consciousness. So, you know, whether it's, you know, I work a lot with the medicine Buddha, I work a lot with dragon energy. And so when those beings show up inside that space, the understanding is, oh, okay, yeah, you know, here's medicine Buddha. But there's the understanding that that is me. That is just another manifestation of me that is, you know, seemingly separate, but it has things that it can teach to this individuated consciousness, that it can heal in this individuated consciousness to bring it back into balance, bring it back into harmony. And so I feel like a lot of the learning from that ceremony was around having a very soft concentration and maintaining the space energetically and also balancing that with a surrender to allow that guidance, whatever whatever is guiding me, this other aspect of my awareness or self, whether it's mother ayahuasca or another being, to have that surrender and trust to allow that dance to unfold in combination with utilizing enough concentration to maintain the space. Yeah, and so divvying up awareness in these multiple ways and then, you know, basically dancing with these different parts of awareness as they need to be. You know, if something's trying to get in the space, utilizing different mantra or phrases or, you know, other symbology to remove them from the space or to clear the space at the same time while trying to be open to whatever the medicine wants to show me. So yeah, I felt like a lot of the learning was around or remembering was around how does one manage a space and also surrender inside that space at the same time. You're doing the work of the shaman and the, of the individual. Yeah. <laughs> what are your plans for that going forward? So I feel like 
and again, you know, all of this, uh, I, I have a lot of trust in Paul, so sure. everything is, you know, very guided by him. But my feeling is, you know, I would like to be able to continue to work with the medicine on my own, you know, once every month, once every two months or so. And then, you know, going deeper into ceremony and retreat with Paul or, you know, his teacher, Peter, on occasion. And, uh, you know, again, talking about what we did with the Bliss Junkies and the integration, I feel like a few really potent, meaningful, well-intentioned medicine ceremonies can carry one through months, years, decades of, of being able to have the clarity that we need to do this work. But again, there's no magic number for anybody. Somebody might drink three times and that's plenty for them on their path. Somebody else might drink 3,000 times. And, you know, again, this intention that we're bringing to it. So, you know, I see moving forward, continuing to remember what my relationship with the medicine was previous lifetimes, if you want to use that construct, and then really being able to utilize this relationship in a way where it can springboard my healing work. Again, as we were talking about, I'd like to move into doing healing work with the Qigong practice. And so, yeah, I see this as an opportunity to basically sit one-on-one -on -one with, you know, the ayahuasca spirit as well as the other guides that I work with and being in this space where, you know, it's like another form of school. So that's kind of where I see my relationship with the medicine moving into at least now is this deeper, more one-on-one -on -one relationship to begin to delve into more of the, uh, the nooks and crannies of my attachments, my aversions. <laughs> when you go into the space in a kind of solo environment where you're holding the container, do you kind of choose to call up and work with this particular spirit guide or something yourself rather than relying on the shaman to kind of work with those for you? Is that part of the... So, um, you know, again, I've been fortunate that the two shamans I've sat with, Paul and his teacher, Peter, are, you know, at least from what other people have reported to me who have sat with other shamans, are probably the most powerful shamans and uh, well-intentioned as well. So when I'm in their space, I, you know, besides like some basic guardians I set up just because they help me in my own work, there's nothing I do to protect the space when I'm sitting right. with a shaman. On my own, there's some tools that Paul has taught to me in terms of calling in the elements and the directions, calling in the archangels and their corresponding directions and elements as well. And so utilizing the elements, the guardians of the elements and the archangels are really powerful protectors at, uh, you know, managing the space. And then, yeah, you know, if something tries to get into the space, sometimes, you know, working with, uh, like I work with uh, St. Germain, so the Violet Flame, a lot of those things. That technology can be really useful at transmuting energy inside of the space as well. So when I'm doing things on my own, my sense is that, you know, utilizing the tools that Paul has taught me to form the container and hold it were very useful in my first experience of working with the medicine on my own. You know, there was uh, once in the journey where I was pulling just all of this gunk out of my uh, stomach and spleen. And uh, again, it could have been the collapse of my concentration, but as I was pulling this stuff out, the container began to shrink and shrink and shrink. And my mantras weren't working, other things weren't working. Busted some apacho out and uh, a few other things that, that have been shared with me. And yeah, like magic, space opened right back up again. Mm. Everything was clear. And so, yeah, I feel like besides the container, there's a whole different set of tools and technologies most shamans work with to manage the space inside separate from the container being managed. Okay. Anything else that we haven't covered that, that you'd like to talk about for people starting on this work? 
The only thing that, you know, I usually share in general with people is, you know, before I came here, sounds very similar to yourself, is, you know, there's this sense of just a, a deep dissatisfaction with life. You know, we may have all of the boxes checked we were told to check, you know, I have a job, family, car, kids, all the things we feel like are supposed to make us happy. But because most of us don't know really who and what we are and what the nature of reality and the possibilities of life are, we feel quite constrained by the conditions and the you know cultural societal norms that are around us. And it can be really scary and difficult to take that step you know, away from the known and into the unknown. And so besides individuals like yourself who have you know, found the bravery and the courage to go, you know, if this is it, this this can't be it. And if it is, I'm I'm out. This is not what I signed up for. I feel like a lot of us in the West are are in that place in our life. And, you know, I'm not suggesting to run away from it, but you know, if an individual does feel a calling to make a deep change in their life, it doesn't have to be medicine work, but maybe it's following a hobby or taking up a new practice or meeting new people. A lot of that times what I sense is that this yearning for something, this this deep suffering that may not be on the surface, but we feel, is that motivating force that is eventually going to lead us to feel like we have no choice but to take that first step. But I feel like most of us can feel and sense these things quite acutely already. And uh, the only thing that I would put out there is, you know, if, if somebody does feel like they're they're stuck, that, you know, life is not going to get any better or, you know, I, I can't do the things I want to do in life to trust themselves, to, you know, take that leap of faith, to take that leap of courage. And on this path of really coming back into your own power, your own awareness, it seems like that first step is the most difficult. And then we're like, oh, okay, trusting my intuition or my gut or my heart seem to be okay, let, let, let's take another step. And it seems like the more that we take those steps, then all of a sudden the conditioning's not pulling us around anymore. We're very clear and secure in, in our own being. And yeah, you know, if, if uh, people are feeling that way, I would highly suggest trusting your gut, trusting your intuition. And, you know, just to kind of end things, what I found is I felt like the first 29, 30 years of my life, I had never made my own decision before. Everything was always a, oh, you should go to college, you should study this, you should do that. I felt like I had a choice, an illusion of one. And so when I began to see that or feel that a lot of these choices weren't actually my own, they were conditioned responses, there was a lot of fear around okay, so then how do I navigate? How do I go through life? And what I found is stop worrying about whether we're going to make the right or wrong choice. There is no wrong choices. There's just the sense of a choice, let's say. And if we are fully committed to a choice, we take that step and it doesn't go the way that we want to. You know, it turns into something difficult or something painful. Because we were the ones who wanted to make that choice, we don't have the excuse of saying, oh, well, so-and-so wanted me to do it, or yeah. So we can really be honest with our choices that we make. And so if it doesn't go the way that we want, that's a feedback mechanism for us to go, oh, well, I won't do that again. And there's no excuses anymore. So there are no wrong choices anymore if you know people are really worried about making the right or wrong choice. There's just choices that we can learn from or we can make excuses for. So I feel like the more people can step back into their power of, of making their own choices, being responsible for them and learning from them, sky's the limit. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate this is really lovely. I always enjoy conversations with you. <laughs> <laughs>
I hope you enjoyed this episode of Visionary Spaces. The mission of Visionary Spaces is to spread the wisdom of the masters of the visionary space. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and better yet, give us a five-star review. Getting great reviews really helps our mission. If you know of a guest who would be a great addition to this podcast, please send me an email at info at lessonslived.com. That is, again, info at lessonslived.com. And make sure to put visionary spaces in the subject line. Until next time, I wish you well.